Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mind Matters. On today's show, we're going to be discussing Christopher Browning's book, uh, Ordinary Men. Got a picture of it there. Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Now, like a lot of people, we were turned on to this book by Jordan Peterson because he recommends it as a way of seeing what ordinary people are capable of and what we, you know, presumably would also be capable of given peer pressure, conformity, and hysteria, and all of the different things that were going on at the time of Nazi Germany. And so in this book, we've been uh, reading it for the, about the, the past week, and this is what Christopher Browning writes about the questions and methods and materials he had for writing this book. He writes, how had the Germans organized and carried out the destruction of this widespread Jewish population? And where had they found the, man the manpower during this pivotal year of the war for such an astounding logistical achievement in mass murder? The personnel of the death camps was quite minimal, but the manpower needed to clear the smaller ghettos to round up and either deport or shoot the bulk of Polish Jewry was not. Why did most men in this reserve police battalion 101 become killers while only a minority of perhaps 10% and certainly no more than 20% did not? Well, the search for the answers to these questions led me to the town of Ludwigsburg near Stuttgart. Here is located the Central Agency for the State Administrations of Justice, the Federal Republic of Germany's Office for Coordinating the Investigation of Nazi Crimes. I was working through their extensive collection of indictments and judgments for virtually every German trial of Nazi crimes committed against the Jews of Poland when I first encountered the indictment concerning Reserve Police Battalion 101, a unit of the German Order Police. Though I had been studying archival documents and court records of the Holocaust for nearly 20 years, the impact this indictment had upon me was singularly powerful and disturbing. Never before had I encountered the issue of choice so dramatically framed by the course of events and so openly discussed by at least some of the perpetrators. Never before had I seen the monstrous deeds of the Holocaust so starkly juxtaposed with the human faces of the killers. In writing about this bat uh, police battalion, therefore, I have depended heavily upon the judicial interrogations of some 125 men conducted in the 1960s. And he uses the words powerful and disturbing, and I think that is exactly the kind of the impact that this book has on you. It's a, not an easy read by any means. I mean, largely, you know, the German phrases and, and having to put yourself into this, you know, you're being forced into a situation where you can easily empathize with the individuals that are, um, you know, going through this indoctrination, basically. They're from working class areas. They are mostly from Hamburg. I think he said about 60 to 70 percent of the individuals were from Hamburg, Germany. And they weren't, you know, they weren't scholars. They, they were just policemen. And they were, um, you know, they were used and utilized to carry out this mass uh, destruction of human life. Well, maybe a bit more about the individuals involved, because <clears throat> like you said, these were this was a, bat a battalion in the order police. And at this time in the war, the Nazis had basically expanded east through Poland and into Russia. And that's where all the regular troops were. That's where all the all the like commissioned officers and um, you know the people that were drafted and so on. So that's where the the major fighting force of the the Reich was mm -hmm. on the front lines. So for these battalions, they basically had to find 
um, people to enter this police force. And the only people that were left were like middle-aged men and those that were unfit or too old to be in the regular army. So these battalions were largely made up of middle-aged men, business owners. Um, uh, uh, The majority of them were Nazi party members, but they weren't um, they often weren't SS members. They were just kind of people who had joined the party in the last uh, 10 years or so, but weren't super ideological or um, um, high-ranking or anything like that. These were just pretty much the leftovers of the German males in the population that were kind of drafted into this new police force. And they essentially thought they were just going to be a police force. So what would happen was, as the... As the Germans moved east, they had now all of this occupied territory. So the the Germans would put in like new German civil administrations to administer these um, these new territories, these new cities. So the Germans would Germans would be in charge, but now they would be basically responsible for holding the um, the the land behind the front lines, to making sure um, well taking care of policing for partisan behavior, you know, counter-revolutionaries, stuff like that, and, of course, the, the Jewish populations. But for the people that were drafted into this, into this police force, they were under the impression, presumably, that they were going to be just policing the area. And then when they got there and received their orders, it turned out to be a lot more than that. These guys essentially formed death squads. And a bit more on the on the background, so you mentioned he found these documents, so... The documents he primarily uses are the kind of testimonies and interrogations of a lot of these men, but also some um, some official records, like memos back and forth between the the leadership of the battalions and the their higher ups in um, either just the the government or the SS. And some of those are pretty, make for pretty stark reading too. And then my last point on on that intro is just the you you mentioned the. Um, just how disturbing it is. This is a this is a very disturbing book to read. Like it's not something to read if you're lighthearted at all, because it goes into all the details of what happened, and um, and it's it's pretty amazing. Um, because well, the first thing I think of when I when I read um, interrogations or testimony, you always have to be somewhat skeptical of what's going on, and he is, because in a lot of cases you might get coerced testimony, or you might get um, evasive testimony. So figuring out the exact truth of the matter can be a difficult, um, you know, a difficult job when you're looking at evidence of this sort. But I think he does a, a pretty good job from, just from what I can tell from, uh, you know, my own, my own judgment, does a pretty good job of trying to find where the most, uh, the, where the most accurate, mm, you know, version of events is within all of this sometimes conflicting evidence, but oftentimes, if you if you read the footnotes or if just in the course of the of the chapters, you see that they uh, oftentimes the the testimonies align in certain ways to give an accurate picture of what was going on. And one of the one of the first big kind of major events that happened, maybe we can get into this, was, well, um, maybe before we get into that, just just an overview of what these guys were doing. So, like I said, they were going into the newly acquired territories, and they were basically responsible for, in any given village or small town, or, um, or maybe, even, maybe even some larger cities, 
but going in and resettling the Jewish populations. So, and it wasn't, it wasn't always just the Jewish populations, it was kind of native Poles as well, and, uh, and gypsies, basically rounding them all up, and then, um, as far as these guys knew before actually doing it, um, just putting them on trains and resettling them further east. So that's, what they're, that's kind of what they thought they were doing. That, that's partially what they were doing, but when it came down to it, what their job actually was, was to go into the ghettos or just, um, just kind of mixed cities that might be 30, 40, 50% Jewish, round up the Jewish population, oftentimes in the marketplace or in a kind of like a town square or a, I guess like a, a stadium type building or, um, or any type of, you know, large, um, large building or space where people could be rounded up, first going to their places of residence, so like going to their homes and forcefully, you know, taking them out of their homes into this place. But they were at first not given the order, but it was made clear that there was no use for the old, the weak, oftentimes the women and the infants. So at first, these guys thought, okay, well, there's no need for them, so they would just let them go or leave them. And then they said, no, okay, you have to bring, you have to, you have to bring everyone. So they'd bring everyone. Oh, but no, we don't need the, we don't need the children. It became clear very soon that they were to shoot the infants and the old and the weak on the spot. And so that's what they, that's what a lot of them did. <clears throat> um, so going to a home, if there was a, a family with, you know, an elderly person and, a, and an infant and, and a, a weak mother, they were to shoot them there on the spot, execute them, and then take the men. And a lot of the, the Germans that were, um, you know, in these, in these squads couldn't kill the children even then. So they'd often just let the children go or let them, let them go with their mothers and then they'd be kind of told off by their superiors once all the people were gathered, like, oh, you have to be more, uh, more strict, you can't, can't let these people come through. So that was now standard operating procedure for all of these operations, mm -hmm. all these uh, Jewish actions, I think they called them, was to immediately kill the old, the weak, and the children. So then once they had them all um, corralled into an area, oftentimes, They'd be just forced to sit there, you know, for hours in on, on a hot summer day, and you're not given any food or water or anything like that. And then they would oftentimes pick the pick the pick the most fit and uh, young and healthy, and they would be sent off to um, to a work camp. And then everyone else would be um, would be often oftentimes walked out into the forest outside of the village or the town, and then over the course of the day um, into the evening, just, you know, put before essentially firing squads out in the forest and just, uh, you know, killed in groups of, t of 20 to 30. And so just with that said, um, I want to read, first of all, one of the, an example of one of the orders that was given. So this was after a meeting between, you know, some of the some of the heads of these various departments, like the order police, with kind of the top brass. 
So two days after this meeting, this is on July 11th, I believe, 1941, Colonel Montua of the Police Regiment Center, which included Police Battalions 316 and 322, the majority of the books about Police Battalion 101, um, issued the following order. Confidential, number one, by order of the higher SS and police leader, all male Jews between the ages of 17 and 45 convicted as plunderers are to be shot according to martial law. The, sh the shootings are to take place away from cities, villages, and thoroughfares. The graves are to be leveled in such a way that no pilgrimage site can arise. I forbid photographing and the permitting of spectators at the executions. Executions and grave sites are not to be made known. Number two, the battalion and company commanders are especially to provide for the spiritual care of the men who participate in this action. The impressions of the day are to be blotted out through the holding of social events in the evenings. Further men, uh, furthermore, the men are to be instructed continuously about the political necessity of the measures. So that's the, that's the order that the, that the kind of top guys received. And then, of course, so they go and commit one of these actions. And then after the, this, I thought was really interesting. This was a report that was sent back from the uh, regional commissioner of Slutsk, which was a town near Minsk in what's now Belarus. And this is just uh, maybe a couple... Maybe a couple extracts from the, the report that he sent back to his superior. So this was from that regional commissioner to the general commissioner in Minsk concerning Jewish action. So this was written on October 30th, 1941. I'll start reading and then maybe um, just jump ahead to some bits. In reference to my telephone report of October 27, 1941, I submit the following to you in writing. On the morning of October 27th, about 8 o'clock, a first lieutenant of Police Battalion 11 from Kovno, Lithuania, appeared. He introduced himself as the adjutant of the battalion commander of the security police. The first lieutenant declared that the police battalion had been assigned the task of carrying out the liquidation of all Jews in the city of Slutsk for within two days. The battalion commander was approaching with a force of four companies, two of them Lithuanian auxiliaries, and the action had to begin immediately. I thereupon answered the first lieutenant that in any case, I first of all had to discuss the action with the commander. About one half hour later, the police battalion arrived in Slutsk. At re as requested, the discussion with the battalion commander then took place immediately after his arrival. I explained first of all to the commander that it would scarcely be possible to carry out the action without prior preparation, because all the Jews had been sent to work and there would be frightful confusion. At the very least, he was ob obligated to give one day's notice. I then asked him to postpone the action for one day. He nonetheless rejected this, noting that he had to carry out the action in, in the he had to carry out actions in the cities all around, and only two days were available for Slutsk. At the end of these two days, Slutsk had to be absolutely free of Jews. I immediately lodged the, sh the sharpest protest against this, in which I emphasized that a liquidation of the Jews could not take place arbitrarily. The larger portion of Jews still present in the city consisted of craftsmen and their families. One simply could not do without the Jewish craftsmen because they were indispensable for the maintenance of the economy. Furthermore, I referred to the fact that white Russian craftsmen were, so to say, utterly unavailable, that therefore all vital enterprises would be paralyzed with a single blow if all Jews were liquidated. 
At the conclusion of our discussion, I've mentioned that the craftsmen and specialists, insofar as they were indispensable, had, had identification on hand, and that these Jews were not to be taken out of the workshops. It was further agreed that all Jews still in the city, especially, in the, especially the craftsmen's families, whom I also did not want to have liquidated, should first of all be brought to the ghetto for the purpose of sorting. Two of my officials were to be authorized to carry out the sorting. The commander in no way opposed my position, so in good faith I believed that the action would therefore be carried out accordingly. So it goes on, and he writes that basically this Lithuanian guy totally disregarded his, his uh, order and was rounding up everyone. They, and... They almost actually they they almost got into a shooting match with these guys with the Lithuanians who were basically well we'll get into them in a while the 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 guys that had come in to to carry out this action were just rounding everyone up this guy the commissioner was going around with his guys trying to pick out the you know some Jews that they wanted to keep that they didn't want killed and it was just back and forth there was shooting going on in the streets and it was just a complete just uh, you know. Uh, complete disaster and so here you have this one guy who's actually um, got at least common sense and a little bit of a little bit of a heart not very much given the situation but he's saying no you're going to absolutely wreck the economy they they um, all of these people are needed so what happens basically after this they take out all of these jewish craftsmen they ma he manages to save a few of them and immediately you know all of the factories can't work none of the none of the the, the, the stores have full capability. They lose all of these master craftsmen who can't be replaced. So everything just kind of falls apart. So this, these actions were not only, well, th these actions were not only destructive, but self-destructive too, because they, they couldn't actually, the, these people were, were integral in the economy and the, just the, 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 the civic life of these places and they were just torn out and you know, what happens then everything falls apart so this just reading this one report it gives you an idea of the the variety of reactions and worldviews and kind of points of view of the of the different individuals involved and this will come out too when we look at the um at the individuals in the reserve battalion 101 because they weren't all just cookie cutter nazis there were a, like a, a variety of different types of people involved. You know, they're all individuals. Some of them have similar reactions. Some of them have other reactions. So, I don't know. With that said, was there was there were there any specifics about what these guys were actually doing that you wanted to bring up, Corey? Um, no, I well, I did want to just touch on uh, on one individual. I think now that we're talking about the Reserve Battalion One Hundred One, that. The commander, Major Wilhelm Trapp, uh, he was the commander of this battalion um, that uh, during the time that Christopher Brown is really covering in this book, he devotes, um, you know, a large part of the book is devoted to the history um, leading up to the final solution and it, you know, how it was carried out in, in Poland and then, you know, discussing the indictments and, and all that stuff. But there's, um, but a lot of the action takes place. You get to know the characters during around the time of 1942, uh, July to October of 1942 and how things began to escalate um, in terms of turning uh, a crew of, of people who were mostly uneducated laborers, um, some skilled craftsmen um, from Hamburg into a, a 
a killing, a really hardened killing machine that would that didn't that wouldn't flinch at the murder of children and and women. And uh, one important person in that regard is the commander, uh, Major Wilhelm Trapp, who was uh, an Iron Cross recipient during World War I. He was largely considered a, a, a war hero. He was 53 at this time, and he was uh, referred to by his um, subordinates as Papa Trapp. That was his. Um, that was the term of endearment that was given to him. And he wasn't in the SS, but he was a Nazi Party member, and he was. Um, but he just wasn't considered cut from the right cloth to be part of the SS. He was, you know, obviously he had authority and he um, had a war record, and he was a, a uh, you know, had a career policeman uh, following the you know World War One and all the civil unrest, civic unrest that followed. But he was still relatively normal. I mean, he still had what you would probably consider a normal emotional reaction to the events um, that led up to uh, a, an entire chapter in this book, Chapter 5, I believe it was, which was the massacre at Jusifuf. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Jusifuf. Um, it's a, a town in Poland where the um, on the early morning of July 13th, um, the the reserve battalion was aroused, was roused and told that they were going to be given a very interesting task and um major trap kind of he came out and he he basically tried to sell everyone on this idea that the the jews had instigated this war against um or had got uh yeah instigated a war against germany and so they had to escalate their efforts and um begin you know just wholesale uh, murder of this of every Jew in in this town, and but he at the same time gave the his uh, these police officers uh, the opportunity that if they did not feel like they were up to the task that they could um, abandon shit basically they could just go and do guard duty or you know basically do anything else besides. Um, become part of this this killing team and you know they had been given orders they were told how to exactly how to how to um where to point the bayonet on the rifle in order to guarantee a kill with one bullet um not that and most everybody was not capable of doing this for whatever reason so it was you know just horrendous um and they a lot of them didn't realize at the time how horrendous and evil it was and um one individual stood forward when given the opportunity not to engage in the actual killing, and he was lambasted by his his superior, um, and you know, just the, he was just you know ripping into him, calling him a, a you know a shit bag and a, a coward and a you know all this. But Major Trap um, upheld his decision, and then I think it was it was a very small number of people then followed and were, you know, the, under the protection of the commander, were allowed to uh, to just excuse themselves from from the killing. And But um, that didn't mean that anybody was actually any good at it either. Mm. There was a an enormous amount of alcohol was required after the first day in order just to drown their sorrows and they were even told you know don't you know don't talk don't talk about any of this don't you know don't discuss it but they didn't need to be told that they had already you know through um you know being covered with gore and you know from the murder of old men and women and children um they 
many of them tried to find other ways to escape, you know, to, to go out. They would intentionally miss when they were shooting. Mm -hmm. They would, um, they would run off and, you know, pretend like they're doing some other duty, trying to look busy. Um, but in every, in the, every testimony, it was just the pure instinctual revulsion at it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't an ethical revulsion to what they were doing. It was like, literally it just, they were on a biological level incapable of doing that without becoming sick. And time after time you read about how they were so nauseous and disgusted at it, but you, you know, you don't ever get the sense that they felt that it was fundamentally, um, uh, something that they could never live with themselves for doing. Yeah, there was, I think, well, he makes the point of, of pointing out that very few cited any kind of ethical considerations. He does quote a few, um, like one who, who said, no, this is just something I can't do. One said, I, you know, where I'm from, I'm a business owner and I, and I know a lot of Jews and I can't do this. Mm -hmm. So there were a few, but like you said, most of them, it was purely instinctual. So even in that first moment where trap offers them like a way out to start out with only a handful took him up on the offer and browning points out that this this even this was just an instinctual response because you basically had a split second to make this decision so some in that split second did make that decision mm -hmm. everyone else goes out to the forest to execute these hundreds i can't even i can't remember how many it was on this first day if it was hundreds or a thousand and the first i'll describe a bit about how they did that so they take them out into the forest in groups like they get them onto trucks drive them out and they had these i may be conflating a few of the events because because they're all pretty similar but take them out prior to this some people had scouted out the forest for locations so they have this location where they line everyone up and i believe on this first one it was paired up so each person was paired up with with a victim so they basically had the person they were going to shoot next to them could look them in the face then they line them up in a, line them up in the forest turn them around put them on the ground and then they they use their bayonet to aim you know in the last sort of the last um, vertebrae connecting to, to the cranium and to, to get a clean shot because they only wanted to use one bullet and you know they had certain number certain amount of ammunition and they had to uh, be conservative with their ammunition so they would off they would they would shoot but whenever they would just be slightly off they would just end up exploding the the back of the the head of the skull so the so they'd shoot and the the skull would explode bone fragments and brain and blood would just spatter on the the shooter and everyone else around them and it was just the the pure horror of just this carnage that a lot of them would have to go out into the forest and throw up and, but no, they had to come back and keep doing it. And so 20, 30 rounds of this, of bringing in these groups. And then each time they'd move the location a bit further away so that the, 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 the new batch wouldn't see all the, all the bodies from the old batch, but everyone could hear, could hear the gunshots going in. So there are reports from back in the town where everyone hears the gunshots and then everyone that's left in the town is screaming and, and crying. And then the people waiting to be executed too. Uh, well, some of them would be screaming and crying. And then some, what a lot of them, a lot of the policemen say, they were amazed that they just went to their deaths quietly and almost with a, with a dignity. And, um, 
so so there were these various reactions. The the first few initially that took took the opportunity not to participate, and then uh, a group of those that did participate that couldn't handle it anymore. So their excuse often to their superior and to their colleagues was, oh, I'm just too weak. I'm just too cowardly. They might not say cowardly, but they'd say, I'm too weak. And he gets into this a bit in the conclusion of the book where he, he talks about just the, the oddity of this. Well, first of all, in the, in the chapter on this where he mentions it, he points out that, you know, it was really the ones that, that refused to go through with this who, were, who had courage. But, but everyone involved framed it as cowardice. So for them, they saw themselves as cowards. They weren't strong enough to, they, weren't, they didn't have the, the courage to kill women and children. And that's how everyone saw it. So mm-hmm. the, their, their colleagues, the rest of the police battalion, would, would uh, you know, swear at them and call them, like you said, shitbags or cowards. Mm-hmm. And they'd be the ones to go off and, and uh, continue with the killing. And as he points out numerous times, it was only about 10 to 20% that didn't engage in these actions or that couldn't chose not to or did for a while and then said, no, I can't do it. But around 80 to 90% went through um, 100% the whole time. And I believe even a, even a lot of those that originally said they couldn't do it, eventually, well, either had to or did do it because they weren't given the option after that. After, those fir- after that first moment and those, those first opportunities to say no... After that, it was just taken for granted. Okay, now you have this operation to do. Go do it. But what they did was the the commanders kind of saw saw the situation and then adapted a bit. So from then on, primarily what the battalion, these guys, these order police guys would do, they were given the guard duties. So they would stand guard outside the forest or around the ghetto or or anything like that. They weren't necessarily directly involved in the shooting. Of course, there were situations where they had to be in future cases because uh, either a shortage of men or whatever. But it would be the um, the other other groups involved, including the uh, what are they called? The I can't remember the name for them, but they were the the auxiliary uh, auxiliaries taken from prisoner of war camps. So this would be like the Estonians, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, who would be after being taken to a prisoner of war camp, they would vet them for their anti-communist, anti-Semitic feelings and and views, and then um, co-opt them and conscript them into these other battalions that would act as the killing squads. So these guys would be primarily the ones that would do the shooting after that. And by all reports from in the book, they um, they were a lot... um, They did it with a lot more ease than these order... uh, these police order guys, order police guys. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically what these guys were doing. They do it into the, into the middle of the night or at least at, you know, hours after dark to, to finish up. And then, like you said afterwards, just drink. Um, and even a lot of the commanders involved, not just the, the trap guy, but the, there were other commanders, and they'd just get drunk before the operation. The, Lithuan- the Lithuanians and the Latvians would get drunk beforehand because they knew it was coming. So, so add to... Th- Add to all this the the drunkenness, and a lot of these operations, like the the clearing of the villages, just imagine there, there's all these drunk guys running around shooting people, and it was just mayhem. People screaming, bodies piling up in the streets, and then taking them out to to be shot in the forest, and then just the shooting going on all day out in the forest. So everyone knew it was happening. Everyone 
and yeah, everyone knew it was happening and it was, uh, just, uh, had to be, had to have been a nightmare. And that, that was just the, the, the shootings at the towns themselves. There were also the deportations. So they didn't shoot everyone. Uh, well, sometimes they did. Sometimes they did shoot entire, uh, Jewish populations within a given town or village off other times they would basically select who were going to be sh- executed in the in the woods and the rest would be put onto trains and that's a whole other thing because the order police had the duty of guarding these trains going out to like Sobibor and uh, and Treblinka and the the way that happened is that they'd have this train with um you know 1 to 2000 Jewish prisoners on it and then 10 to 15 order police as guards. So the way they do it is, I mean, we've all heard the stories and they're laid out in detail here too, but a hundred to 200 people try like crammed into a train car. Um, the, the doors would then be, um, hammered, nailed shut, no food, no water. Again, hot summer days traveling for two to three to four days straight, no water, no food. And, Oftentimes, the, so what they'd get them on the trains. The trains would go, and then as the trains were going, there were basically air holes in each of the carts that, were, that had um, barbed wire outside of them. The, the people in the train, usually the strongest ones, would manage to get the barbed wire off and knock out some boards and jump out. So anyone that was seen trying to escape would be shot. And then at one point on one of these journeys, they had to change trains and the, and the, the new, um, the new engine was this old rickety engine. So they couldn't get up to speed and it was constantly breaking down and stopping. Every time they'd stop, new people would try to escape the trains. They'd be shot. So by the end of that, they'd run out of ammunition. They'd killed hundreds of people that were, that were trying to escape. And then by the time they got there, of course, many were Many had died in the trains from being trampled and suffocated and from heat stroke, um, lack of food. It was uh, e- even like at, e- at every stage of this journey, it was just um, just a complete horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read just his summary of these trips that they'd take, these, uh, these deportation trains. Um, if I can find it, yeah, let's see. 36. So this is on the chapter, one of the chapters on the deportations. So this is after a document that was sent back, basically a, a complaint f- again from one of the, um, one of the people involved in, in guard duty, probably the officer and laying out all the things that were wrong with this trip, you know, including the bad rations that the, the Germans got, um, with no mention of the fact that the, the, the 2000 Jews in the carts were, um, Oh no, more than that, were you know didn't have any food or water. But he summarizes the report um, as such. This document demonstrates many things: the desperate attempts of the deported Jews to escape the death train, the scanty manpower employed by the Germans, a mere ten men to guard over eight thousand Jews, the unimaginable, unimaginably terrible conditions, forced marches over many miles, terrible heat, days without food and water and packing of 200 Jews into each train car, etc. 
That led to fully 25% of the deported Jews dying on the train from suffocation, heat prostration, and exhaustion, to say nothing of those killed in the shootings, which was so constant that the guards expended their entire ammunition supply as well as replenishment. The casual mention that even before the deportation, hundreds of Jews judged too old, frail, and sick to get on the train were routinely shot in each action. Moreover, the document makes clear that this action was only one among many in which members of Reserve Police Battalion 133 participated alongside the security police in Galicia during the late summer of 1942. So that's what these guys were doing for this period of time, um, clearing out villages, executing hundreds of people a day, sometimes thousands, and then shipping off thousands of people in the in the trains and killing hundreds on the way either deliberately or um or through just neglect of the the passengers at the end of the book he's got the tables for um reserve battalion 101 and the, the like the the known minimum estimates for the 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 number of jews they killed or deported mm -hmm. and so the number of um so there are th basically three well a bunch of huge massacres um like uh Josephuf, is that how you say it yes Josephuf. The, they shot 1500 people that day 1700 um the next month in another operation 1100 another and then look at the others uh so uh, 960 200 200 100 150 290 300 1000 so killing up to 1700 people a day in these shootings, and then deportations, 5,000, 10,000, 2,000, 7,000. And again, if any, if, if any number of these deportations, um, these train rides were as bad as the one that was you know, just written about, up to 25% of the, of the, well, more than 25% of the people on those trains would die en route through... Uh, through suffocation or exhaustion or from trying to escape and being shot. Yeah, and just to put that into uh, the big the big picture, in the beginning of the book, uh, Chris Brown writes about the number of victims of the final solution who are still alive in early, what was it, March 1942. About 75 to 80% of the victims of the final solution were still alive. But 11 months later, in 1943 it was the numbers were completely reversed and it was because largely because of this um you know groups and b b battalions like this and what and the choices that quote unquote ordinary men were making in the elimination of of all of these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of people and i mean i i just wanted to go back a little bit to um you had discussed the ethical stances that some of these people had chosen in terms of you know not wanting to participate and i just want to read a little bit from from the book um uh so this is what he has to say most of the interrogated policemen denied that they had any choice faced with the testimony of others many did not contest that 
that major trap this in this particular instance at the massacre at Yusuf had made the offer of refusing to murder, but claimed that they had not heard that part of the speech or could not remember it. A few policemen made the attempt to confront the question of choice, but failed to find the words. It was a different time and place, as if they had been on another political planet, and the political values and vocabulary of the 1960s were useless in explaining the situation in which they had found themselves in 1942. Quite atypical in describing a state of mind that morning of July 13th was a policeman who admitted to killing as many as 20 Jews before quitting. Quote, I thought that I could master the situation and that without me, the Jews were not going to escape their fate anyway. Truthfully, I must say that at the time we didn't regret about it or think about it at all. Only years later did any of us become truly conscious of what had happened then. Only later did it first occur to me that what I had done had not been right. And another, the two men who explained their refusal to take part in the greatest detail both emphasized the fact that they were freer to act as they did because they had no careerist ambitions. One policeman accepted the possible disadvantages of his course of action because I was not a career policeman and also did not want to become one, but rather an independent skilled craftsman and I had my business back home. Thus, it was of no consequence that my police career would not prosper." And the last, this Lieutenant Buchman had cited an ethical stance for his refusal. As a reserve officer and Hamburg businessman, he could not shoot defenseless women and children. But he, too, stressed the importance of economic independence when explaining why his situation was not analogous to that of his fellow officers. Quote, I was somewhat older then and moreover a reserve officer, so it was not particularly important to me to be promoted or otherwise to advance because I had my prosperous business back home. The company chiefs, on the other hand, were young men and career policemen who wanted to become something. And here, the final quote. In short, the psychological alleviation necessary to integrate Reserve Police Battalion 101 into the killing process was to be achieved through a twofold division of labor. The bulk of the killing was to be removed to the extermination camp, and the worst of the on-the-spot, quote-unquote, dirty work was to be assigned to the individuals you talked about earlier, these ruthless murderers. This change would prove sufficient to allow the men of Reserve Police Battalion 101 to become accustomed to their participation in the final solution. When the time came to kill again, the policemen did not, quote-unquote, go crazy. Instead, they became increasingly efficient and calloused executioners. One more from that same chapter on these reactions. He talks about this one guy. He points out that he was, this was quite the remarkable one. Um, I'll read the whole paragraph here. In addition to the easy rationalization that not taking part in the shooting was not going to alter the fate of the Jews in any case, the policemen developed other justifications for their behavior. Perhaps the most astonishing rationalization of all was that of a 35-year-old metal worker from Bremerhaven. Quote, I made the effort, and it was possible for me, to shoot only children. It so happened that the mothers led the children by the hand. My neighbor then shot the mother, and I shot the child that belonged to her. Because I reasoned with myself that, after all, without its mother, the child could not live any longer. It was supposed to be, so to speak, soothing to my conscience to release children unable to live without their mothers. And then Browning comments, The full weight of this statement and the significance of the word choice of the former policeman cannot be fully appreciated unless one knows that the German word for release, Erlosen, 
also means to redeem or save when used in a religious sense. The one who releases is the erloser, the savior or redeemer. Mm-hmm. So this guy saw, saw himself as the savior of these children um, for killing them after their mothers have been you know, murdered by the guy next to him. But he also points out that, that after, the, after this killing, um, he writes, the resentment and bitterness in the battalion over what they had been asked to do in Yosefov was shared by virtually everyone, even those who had shot the entire day. So the point, and maybe this, this will lead into the kind of the second part of our conversation here. The point he's making is that these were ordinary people. Like these weren't a bunch of psychopaths that they got together to, to form this police battalion. This would be as if you were just to go, go around to various businesses or around your neighborhood and just randomly pick 500 guys. These would be the guys in this battalion. And uni- almost universally, they reacted with revulsion and, um, and, well, I wouldn't say they couldn't live with themselves, but they had, at the very least, they had negative emotional reactions to what they'd done that day even if they hadn't, um, hadn't refused to do anything about it. They had, a, um, they had a, a moral revulsion, even if they couldn't frame it in terms of moral revulsion, just the, just the physical. <clears throat> so in the last chapter of the book, he gets into the explanations, the whys. He kind of dig, tries to dig a bit deeper into the, you know, the explanation for how this happens. So w- whenever this kind of discussion comes up, there are a few kind of pat responses to and theories that will come up so um if you maybe just some of them might be one that they were just uh, all these nazis were brainwashed and it was the, the 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 nazi government that brainwashed them into into hardened serial killers essentially and then there might be um you know it was just um it was just conformity or or like I, the first one i mentioned they were all just psychopaths and that um uh, and then if you take in Jordan, the, the reason Jordan Peterson often brings up this story, it's the, it's the reaction of someone viewing this from the outside. Oh, well, that would never be me. Right. I, I'd be the person that would refuse. Well, um, well, he wouldn't, this guy too wouldn't agree with that. And we'll, we'll read how he gets into that later on. But um, I want to go through some of the explanations he gives and then how they either do or do not apply to these, to, to this reserve battalion, and what you, what he could find out about these individuals themselves. So, the first point he makes is that, um, again, one of the, the the pat answers, one of the stock answers, given um, to something of this sort, is just it's the brutalization of war. When you're engaged in a war, um, there's a dehumanization and a brutalization that takes place, and this, of course, is true. And so he concedes this point that, yes, this, uh, this is a factor, especially a race war. Um, the, the war, just kind of total war, one country against another is bad enough. When you add a racial element to, to that with um, you know, elements of race superiority and the total dehumanization of the, of the enemy, that polarizes things even further. So it's no surprise that you get atrocities in war. And, it, and he brings up just a few examples from all kinds of wars, including uh, Vietnam and uh, various other ones, and, but, but makes the point that most of the atrocities that take place in wars um, ordinarily are from a breakdown in etiquette, you know, a breakdown in the rules of war, that oftentimes there are 
at least um, uh, at least stated or implicit rules of war that then get broken. The chain of command gets mm-hmm. uh, gets broken, and and you get atrocities that aren't directly um, ordered by you know the top uh, chain of command. It's not like in all these wars you get explicit orders. Okay go and commit a, a, a massacre in this village. Sometimes you do, but oftentimes you don't. And a lot, so a lot of the massacres that do, place, do take place are as a, a breakdown of the chain of command. And that is through this brutalization process that he's talking about. But he points out that this doesn't apply to the, to the reserve battalion because these guys weren't war-hardened. They hadn't been involved in combat. They hadn't experienced anything of the sort. The way he puts it is it wasn't the... It wasn't the... Um, how does he... I can't remember the way he frames it. Something like it wasn't the brutalization, or it wasn't the war that led to the brutalization. It was the the brutalization of the murders that actually led to the. Um, um, oh, I can't remember. He had a he had a witty way of, or just a really well formulated way of putting it. That it was the it was the act of taking place and the atrocity that led to the the numbing of their feelings and the the brutalization of their feelings. It wasn't the other way around th- through the through the. The, um, the just kind of, kind of like the escalation of the war and of, of the killing to to then reach that point. It was they, they were just put into the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they they didn't have the chance to be to to first become kind of numbed to the to like seeing their their buddies killed in war or anything like that. It was just you're thrown in the middle of the village out of nowhere and then told to shoot a whole bunch of people. So that didn't really apply in this case. The next one was the negative racial stereotyping and um, other methods of just distancing, and that includes bureaucracy. And that so that too was a um, was a factor, of course, in the war and in most of these wars. And it is uh, kind of um, proven again and again that the, that this distancing phenomenon takes place. It's easier to to dehumanize and to to kill essentially when there's distance between you and your victim. We see this nowadays with the drone wars. It's a lot easier to Kill, a, kill someone with a joystick than it is to, you know, stab them, you know, right in front of them, um, you know, one-on-one pers- to, to personalize it. It's a lot easier to, to kill people from a desk than it is um, with your own two hands. But he points out, um, well, then the other one is that uh, this idea of a selection process, that the SS, for instance, or the, or the people involved in these massacres were selected because of their their, the, the, their psychological features that would make them um, adaptable to this situation. And then the idea of self-selection, too, that it was the, it was the violent people that would join the SS, for instance. They, they would select themselves to enter this organization because they knew it could be an outlet for their, um, for their violent tendencies. Um, but he, as he points out, that doesn't apply to Battalion 101 either because... Um, they weren't selected and they weren't self-selected. Um, they were selected because they were the only people available. There was nothing about them personally, about their careers or about their histories, that would, um, that would point to them being good executioners. They were just random people off the street, essentially. Yeah, well, yeah, and if anything, they were kind of negatively selected because right. the police at, at this point in time uh, enlisting in the police was one way of escaping 
yeah, your war service. Yes, escaping the need to actually go in the front lines and do these things. So, um, if anything, then you're selecting for people who are a little bit more pacifists, or they just want to, you know, they go along to get along. Maybe, you know, they don't want to go out and and murder. They they just want to do whatever they can in order to, um, you know, maintain the lifestyle that they're living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, one more point. Just I want to read a sentence or two from the section where he's talking about bureaucratic life. Segmented, routinized, and depersonalized, the job of the bureaucrat or specialist, whether it um, whether it involved confiscating property, scheduling trains, drafting legislation, sending telegrams, or compiling lists, could be performed without confronting the reality of mass murder. So again, this is kind of like the... Um, Hannah Arendt's banality of evil, mm-hmm. um, just the the bureaucrat, you know, stamping people to their deaths, that yeah. kind of things. And as we'll see, that's actually supported by some um, some research. Um, you know, the the studies everyone's heard about, but we'll get into them because they they do have some good insights. So on the but on the subject of this selection and self selection, um, I want to read this paragraph. So, subsequent advocates of a psychological explanation have modified the Adorno approach. Adorno approach. Adorno was the guy that came up with the F scale, the the, the fascist personality, the right wing authoritarian um, inventory. So, um, have modified his approach by more explicitly merging psychological and situational, social, cultural, and institutional factors. Studying a group of men who had volunteered for the SS, John Steiner concluded that. Quote, a self-selection process for, bru- for, brutal- for brutality appears to exist, end quote. He proposed the notion of the sleeper, certain personality characteristics of violent-prone individuals that usually remain latent but can be activated under certain conditions. So he gives the example of these guys that in normal life pre-war just seem to be ordinary people. In war, this violent kind of barbarian comes out of them, and then after war they go back to regular life. And um, then he quotes some people that don't agree with that. Uh, For example, this one guy, Staub, evil that arises out of ordinary thinking and is committed by, evil that arises out of ordinary thinking and is committed by ordinary people is the norm, not the exception. So he is saying that, no, there aren't these pre-existing personality uh, uh, constructs. Yeah, constructs. (laughs) It it is actually just normal people. It's all normal people. So you have these two extremes, right? You've got, uh, so far, we've got this first guy, um, Steiner, well, uh, Adorno, saying it's all personality. Steiner saying it's personality and then the environment that kind of brings out that personality in extreme situations. And then you've got the other extreme, which is it's all just normal people, so it all must be situational. So um, one more bit. If Staub makes Steiner's sleeper unexceptional, Zygmunt, uh, Zygmunt Bauman goes so far as to, discuss, to dismiss it as, a, as to dismiss it as a metaphysical prop. For Bauman, quote, cruelty is social in its origin, much more than it is characterological. Bauman argues that most people slip into the roles society provides them, and he is very critical of any implication that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. For him, the exception, the real sleeper, is the rare individual who has the capacity to resist authority and assert moral autonomy, but who is seldom aware of his hidden strength until put to the test. So I just want to make a few comments on these approaches so far. 
Um, one to say is, uh, or first to say that most of them are, well, they're, they're all idiots, but they're all kind of smart at the same time. Um, they've all got something going for them. So first, the, the thing that stuck out to me was the Steiner guy and his idea of the sleeper, because that sounds like a good idea to me. But I agree with, it, it's like each person has this one piece of the puzzle and then looks at it to the exclusion of all contradictory evidence, when really they should, uh, what you should really do is realize that humanity is complex and, and there is a, a variety of different personality types. It's going to be different in different situations and with different individuals. I believe, yes, there are sleepers. So if you read political ponderology, which we've discussed on the show numerous times, um, Lobachevsky gets into this kind of stuff in depth and has aspects of all of these different approaches because they're all true in certain situations and to certain degrees. So there are individuals who have certain personality um, characteristics that either lay latent for a while or don't really express themselves. But when given the opportunity, it's like, yes, now I have the opportunity to do this. I've always wanted to do this. Now I get the chance. And then in regular life, back to normal. It's also possible that uh, if you just look at the phenomenon of serial killers, like we had that one show on, on Israel Keys, that perhaps these people aren't perfect in their ordinary life before and after. It's just in a war environment, it's the chance to take the mask off temporarily mm -hmm. because now their own inclinations, their own behavior is socially, morally acceptable. It's okay now if I, to, if I just kill a bunch of people right out in the open because no one's going to sanction me for it. Mm -hmm. There are people like that. So what you get, the impression you get is that there is something to this, uh, this personality-centered approach that there are a minority of people, a small minority of people, we call them psychopaths, who do have these tendencies, who have nothing wrong with killing and oftentimes enjoy it because there are extreme sadists among the psychopath demography mm -hmm. that when put into a war situation, it, it is time for the mask to come off. It's, it's, a, it's an acceptable way for them to reveal who they really are. But that's only going to be a tiny minority of the, of the population. Everyone else is going to have a different psychology because they themselves have a different psychology. They have a different personality makeup. So for this guy that says that evil arises out of ordinary thinking and is committed by ordinary people, and that that's the norm, well, it's only the norm in the sense that normal people are the norm. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, for sure. Most, most people have a regular, uh, a relatively normal personality structure. They have normal emotions. A small minority has very, um, effed up emotions, no emotions. They have a, a kind of like this, this negative emotion, uh, emotional, uh, substructure where they can't feel, they don't feel empathy. They don't feel anything. And in fact, they feel often the opposite. They like being cruel. That's, that's what they they get something out of it, just like serial killers. Again, uh, serial killers are an extreme example, but they are. But they, you can learn something from them because they are kind of the, the these tendencies in the most extreme form possible. But only a fraction of psychopaths are serial killers. Mm -hmm. But all psychopaths have something in common, and that is that total lack of conscience. So then there's this guy that says that, uh, that he's critical of any implication that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. Well, Jesus, like just read one account of a serial killer and you'll get an idea of what mm -hmm. a faulty personality can do. So he then goes on to talk about some of the studies. So of course there's Zimbardo's um, Stanford prison experiment that he talks about. 
um, for those not familiar, it's the one he's Zamardo's a guy that's that set up the experiment where they got uh, just a bunch of kind of ordinary people. At least this is the way it's um, it's uh, kind of sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of ordinary people randomly assigned them as guards or prisoners, and then just let them loose. And then some of the guards became total sadists, and um, and some of them weren't. That's it in a nutshell. Right. I think what was the the one flaw in the study uh, that came out years later was that Zimbardo was he was coaching the guards to be, um, you know, more, you know, intense and more aggressive. Yeah. There's... Which doesn't necessarily, you know, change the, you know, the information. It's just good to have that information in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it doesn't make the study irrelevant. It's still useful. You just have to keep that. I think that was the main detail yeah. that you'd want to keep in mind when com- making comparisons. Yeah, I think one other point. Yeah, so there, there's some evidence that he was he gave some coaching that wasn't really shown in the published paper, mm-hmm. and also there might have been an element of self-selection again in the yeah. in the way that they found volunteers. Mm-hmm. So it's not a totally clean experiment, but does show some interesting things. So like Browning sums up. Zimbardo's spectrum of guard behavior because he finds he he points out that um, about one third of the guards emerged as cruel and tough, um, constantly inventing new forms of harassment and enjoying their newfound power. Um, a middle group was tough but fair. They played by the rules and did not go out of their way to mistreat prisoners. But only two, less than twenty percent, emerged as good guards who did not punish prisoners and even did small favors for them. So he sums up. Zimbardo's spectrum of guard behavior bears an uncanny resemblance to the groupings that emerged within Reserve Battalion, Reserve Police Battalion 101, a nucleus of increasingly enthusiastic killers who volunteered for the firing squads and Jew hunts, a larger group of policemen who performed as shooters and ghetto clearers while assi- when assigned but did not seek opportunities to kill, and in some cases refrained from killing, contrary to standing orders, when no one was monitoring their actions, and a small group, less than 20% of refusers and evaders. So right there you get, well, and this is why I, um, while I appreciate like Jordan Peterson's take on it, this is why I don't totally agree on the way he presents it because his, his presentation is very, well, it's geared to, to an individual for uh, like a pedagogic purpose to, to teach them something that you could be this person. But in reality, you take a hundred, a hundred people, put them in this situation not all hundred are going to behave in the in in the same way. It's not like every one of them is going to be a uh, an executioner. You do get a small minority that does refuse, and you, there is always that small minority. Of course, the fact is that the vast majority do not refuse. So chances are you are going to be one of the one of the killers. But it's when you if if we want to look at 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 um, human nature and its variety, you have to acknowledge that there are some people that don't. Some people that for whatever reason. Um, will not engage in that for whatever reason they give. They might give a self-serving reason, but the fact is they're not out in the forest shooting people. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe moving on to the next one, he uh, he gives one excuse that is often given, um, like in, in interrogations from these people, was that they simply had no choice. Um, and he points out, no, that wasn't true. They were. At, they were actually given the choice or, you know, some people say that people in this situation, when they commit atrocities, it's just because they were given orders when that's not true, especially in this case with major trap. Um, they did have the choice explicitly 
and they understood and they could see him like there there are reports of his his inferiors they saw him running or walking around crying after the first one and saying oh god you know why did they give me these orders i can't believe this he mm -hmm. he could not take it um so they know the in this case they knew they had the the chance the opportunity not to and then the the fact that they were um under what's called like putative duress so basically they had to do it they they were in this situation and it was just the the pressure of um of the their superiors giving them orders and then the fact that they if they didn't bad things would happen to them but he points out that there's there's not one case where uh, a refuser was given any serious punishment and not only in this battalion but like in almost the, the he gives the implication that almost in, in the entire literature on this subject, whenever there's an atrocity like this, it's, it's usually and most often and almost always the case that nothing happens to the people that don't do anything. They may get called names, but in, in at least and in, in Battalion 101 in particular, no one experienced any bad consequences if they didn't. They, they, the, the one guy who was most, um, most adamant that he not participate actually... Um, demanded to be transferred back to Hamburg and eventually got that. So there were no bad consequences for for not participating despite the threats. So just a couple points that he makes on that. And then the last one, which to me is most interesting, is the Milgram experiment. And mm -hmm. I mean, I've <clears throat> it's kind of a cliche at this point, like most people know about it, it's talked about all the time. We'll give a little summary for, for those who haven't heard about it. But there's so much in there, and it's it's probably one of my favorite experiments of this type because there's the the more you look at it, and the more you look at the variations, there's just so much that you can learn from this one experiment, despite its flaws and the things that it didn't and can't test for. So, of course, the Milgram experiment was the famous one um, where subjects were put in a room with uh, with a button in front of them and told to give shocks to the other person in the other room who was taking a certain test. It was like a vocabulary test or something, or spelling. And every time they got an error, they were to give them an electric shock. And as it got, as, as they made more errors, they were to increase the voltage. And as he sums up, as Browning sums up, um, let me find that. Something like, I think again, it was something like 80% of... Uh, 90% of, oh no, 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 I was looking at the wrong one. Um, well, the vast majority of people ended up giving shocks that would have killed the person. So they, they, can, they can either see or hear the other person screaming, like begging no, and then the, the person in charge of the experiment says, no, you have to give, the, you have to give that shock. And so they, some of these people are like sweating. They're like, oh God, and they give the shock. Mm-hmm. And of course, the person isn't actually getting a shock. They're a confederate. They're uh, um, they're in on the experiment, but the person giving the shocks doesn't know that. That's the sh that's the experiment in a nutshell. But there are also various variations on it to show what factors might either increase their um, their conformity or decrease it. So uh, I want to read some of the different situations here. So several variations on the experiment produced significantly different results. If the actor slash victim was shielded so that the subject could no longer hear or see 
the response, obedience was much greater. If the subject had to be both visual, or if the subject had both visual and voice feedback, compliance to the, ex to the extreme fell by 40%. If the subject had to touch the actor victim physically by forcing his hand onto the electric plate to deliver the shocks, obedience dropped to 30%. If a non-authority figure gave orders, obedience was nil. If the naive subject performed a subsidiary or accessory task, but did not personally inflict the electric shocks, obedience was near total. In contrast, if the subject was part of an actor peer group that staged a carefully planned refusal to continue following the directions of the authority figure, the vast majority of subjects, 90%, joined their peer group and desisted as well. If the subject was given complete discretion as to the level of electrical shock to administer, all but a few sadists consistently de delivered a minimal shock. When not under control, or when not under the direct surveillance of the scientist, many of the subjects cheated by giving lower shocks than prescribed, even though they were unable to confront authority and abandon the, the experiment. So again, you see that it's not that simple. It's not like there's one, one or two responses and you fall into either of them. In the ordinary situation, most people end up giving all these shocks. You have some that drop off right away and say no, and then a few more that drop off as things get worse, but overall, the majority of them go through with it, just like Reserve Battalion 101. And then, again, you get this distancing factor too. So if you, the closer you are, the, the less likely you are to do it. So if you have to actually force the person's hand onto the shock, uh, only 30% will do it or something like that. If you, if you can't hear them or see them, fine. Most people will do it. Again, it's the drone joystick phenomenon. And if the person giving the order isn't uh, a researcher, it's just like some schlub off the not street, wearing a lab coat. not wearing a lab coat, they won't listen to him. On the other hand, if it's just some schlub off the street that they've gotten and put into a lab coat, they'll mm -hmm. listen to him because he has the appearance of authority. So... That's just, um, those are some of the variations. So he then applies, Browning then applies these to the, to the battalion with a few other examples. So for example, he gives the, some other factors that c contribute to uh, disobedience or refusal or their opposites. And that, um, for example, one is the momentum of the process. So the more you do it, kind of the more you're invested in finishing it. So if you're halfway through the experiment so far, there's a momentum, you're already doing it, so you're more likely to keep doing it. And uh, a variation on that is the situational obligation or etiquette. So now you'd be, refu or you'd be rude if you refuse to carry on. And you don't want to insult this esteemed researcher doctor who might just be some schlub off the street wearing a lab coat. So there's a, a social anxiety over the potential punishment for disobedience. Oh, well, what if, I, what if I do refuse now? What if I say no? Well, what's going to happen to me? Well, something bad might happen to me. So all these kind of things going on in the head as, as this goes on. Um, so he gets into, this is kind of the, the, what I thought was the, the best thing where he's talking about this mix between authority and conformity. Because it wasn't all, it wasn't all authority. For example, like Trap obviously didn't want to be doing this. He 
he wasn't enforcing it. He wasn't saying everyone had to. He was explicitly giving the option not to. But there was authority in the sense that these orders had come from the top. So they were all under the implication, even if, the, like, so in this case, Trapp was in the trenches with them. He didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it. But they had this distant central authority telling them they had to do it. So that's where the authority was in this situation. But the biggest, or per perhaps the biggest, was the, the peer pressure, the actual um, impulse to, to conform. Um, so I'll get to that in a second. Just a couple of other points he makes There was uh, that, that you can see from the Milgram experiment. So there's, of course, this direct proximity. We see that in Reserve Battalion. The, when they were paired up one-on-one -on -one with their victims, it was a lot harder for these guys to do it. When it was more distant, when they were just, it was just this mass of people that they were shooting at, it was a lot easier for them to carry out these executions. Um, and then the surveillance. When you're being watched by someone, by some superior, you're more likely to go along with it. When there's no one really watching, you can kind of pretend to do it. Um, you can miss, you can shoot off next to their head as opposed to, in the, you know, in the back of their skull. Um, or you can go off into the woods and just get lost for a while and say, oh, uh, you know, I was off doing something else. Also, in a lot of these cases, the the um, it wasn't very organized. So they had different battalions and groups that were, would mix up. So there were there weren't a set number of people in each um, in each execution squad, essentially. So if you were missing, no one really knew because no one really knew where you were supposed to be. So that's how a lot of these guys um, got away with um, avoiding these. And do you want to go? Yeah, I just wanted to, to comment on that, that whole idea of this out of sight, out of mind that you see in the Milgram experiment, where if you can't see the person you're electrocuting and you can't hear them, then you just assume that, you know, they're not dead. And then also, if you're just walking off in the woods, you're not actually seeing um, people getting murdered or whatever you, you are, as long as you are comfortable, um, and you're not nauseous, then it's as if the final solution isn't necessarily happening. And, you know, this is, this describes, I think, a large number of, of people. Clearly, you know, the Milgram experiment suggests that, what did you say, like some 30% um, or a, a, uh, how many people was it who were, they were able to um, administer shocks all the way up to death? Under what conditions? Under the condition that they could not see or hear the victim? Oh, that was, um, I think that was the one where it was almost everyone. Almost everyone was, was able total. to do that. So yeah, just let that, let that no, no, sink it, in. It, it, was when, it was when they were performing a subsidiary task um, that they, that it was near total. So if someone else was giving the shock and they were just the one, like, mm. you know, massaging their elbow while they were pushing it or, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't, that wasn't really what they were Right. Doing. So, and, and that's if they like were given the people... like a, a bureaucratic role, for instance, then mm -hmm. it was near total. Mm -hmm. So there were, there was no one that wouldn't go along with it if it was someone else given the shock. Mm -hmm. No, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's something that uh, this book delivers, you know, deep down as you, as you read it, the, 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 um, what people are capable of mm -hmm. just purely, you know, the kind of potential for, for evil that, that is, you know, that kind of just lurks out there. And as you discussed, there's definitely psychological factors. There's definitely psychological factors involved, but I don't, that's not the whole story. No. And it reminds me of another passage in Ponderology where he's talking about the prison guards and how 
um, when Lobachevsky was arrested one time and tortured, he he made the point to one of his torturers, well, kind of a sarcastic remark, well, like, why do you guys always end up in the mental asylum, like, uh, you know, with your brains degenerating once after all this work? And the guy looks at him and says, well, because it's such damn horrible work. And so he makes Lobachevsky, as a psychologist, as a doctor, he knew that that was a, an occupational hazard for these guys that were working in the prisons, is that it was such, you know, such horrible work that it just did a number on their, on their biology, on their bodies, um, on their brains. Just, the, just being put in this, being put in the role of this prison guard for so long um, degenerated their brains. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, so th- that's the complexity, that's the variety that you see is that we, not, we may not all be born killers, but the vast majority of us can be influenced to be, uh, to be killers, but we'll still have our normal, our, our normal emotional reactions. Mm-hmm. We won't like what we're doing, but we'll still do it. Mm-hmm. We might suffer some consequences, but we'll still do it. That's, the, that's kind of the, the take-home message that, that people should take from these things, not that, the, that all, these other people are evil. Look how these mm-hmm. other people are evil. Look what evil things they do. No, that's you. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you will, you would do that in this, in the sim, in a similar situation, mm-hmm. or at least you. The, it's it's likely that you would. It's probable that you would. Chances are, just based on statistics, chances are you wouldn't be one of the guys that refused. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the the message to take from that. Um, and then one last point on the conformity, and then we'll wrap up for today. So he points out that uh, he's trying to give some of the, the, what must have been going on in these guys' minds. So I'll read, uh, I'll read a bit. So along with ideological indoctrination, a vital factor touched upon but not fully explored in Milgram's experiments was conformity to the group. The battalion had orders to kill Jews, but each individual did not. Yet 80 to 90% of the men proceeded to kill, though almost all of them, at least initially, were horrified and disgusted by what they were doing. To break ranks and step out, to adopt overtly nonconformist behavior, was simply beyond most of the men. It was easier for them to shoot. Why? First of all, by breaking ranks, non-shooters were leaving the dirty work to their comrades. Since the battalion had to shoot even if individuals did not, refusing to shoot constituted refusing one's share of an unpleasant collective obligation. It was, in effect, an asocial act vis-a-vis one's comrades. Those who did not shoot risked isolation, rejection, and ostracism. So put yourself in this situation. It's uncomfortable, but think about it. You've got a bunch of guys, uh, or just friends, people you're close with, people that you've kind of been in the trenches figuratively with, they've all got a really horrible task to do, and you don't join them. Now, the of course, you shouldn't join them. No one should join them. But the reaction, the emotional reaction that you'll have is, well, they're doing the, the dirty work, and I'm, and I'm just you know, selfishly ev- evading my obligations, and I'm leaving the dirty work to them. 
Right. It's that's the that's the big that's the really critical part is that that's how it's viewed is as dirty work. It's a dirty job. You know, it's like on, you know, Discovery Channel or whatever the that network television show that dirty, you know, dirty jobs. Uh, It's, you know, guys who have to go around and repair things under the ocean or, you know, work in the horrible places to these people to these uh, in this era. Uh, that's that's all this was. That was, you know, I mean, this racialist ideology, racial ideologies were, um, they they pretty much ruled the day. You know, it's social Darwinism, all of you know eugenics, the progressive era, um, the Nazi racial uh, ideas. This, all of these kind of racial um, ways of viewing things made it. It made it, it had the strength of science. It had the power and, you know, brilliance of, um, of Darwinian evolution, you know, behind it. This, this massive idea that just seemed so um, obvious to, and it was just all over, you know, journals, intellectuals, academics, everyone was talking and seeing the praises of, you know, these different racial categories and all of this. And so um, one thing that he points out is that this made it, possible for you know ordinary germans um to to view this just as as dirty work you know well you know it's they're not like us they're not us you know this was this was just a part and parcel of the intellectual era Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a section in here where he gets into the uh the ideological material so the the pamphlets and stuff that they'd have to read, the meetings they'd have to go to, mm-hmm. you know, and their hourly indoctrination for the week. Um, yeah, we haven't really gotten into that, but uh, read the book for in, for insight into what was going on there. Um, I want to read on from that last quote that I that I read on uh, the isolation, rejection, and ostracism that could result from, you know, shirking your responsibility. This, uh, this threat of isolation was intensified by the fact that stepping out could also have been seen as a form of moral reproach of one's comrades. The non-shooter was potentially indicating that he was too good to do such things. Most, though not all, non-shooters intuitively tried to diffuse the criticism of their comrades that was inherent in their actions. They pleaded, that, they pleaded not that they were too good, but rather that they were too weak to kill. Such a stance presented no challenge to to the esteem of one's comrades. On the contrary, it legitimized and upheld toughness as a superior quality. For the anxious individual, it had the added advantage of posing no moral challenge to the murderous policies of the regime. Though it did pose another problem, since the difference between being weak and being a coward was not great. So that's what you see in practically all of the people that didn't do this. It wasn't because it wasn't for any noble purpose it was because they were too weak you know mm-hmm. like we said earlier it was because they they just uh, didn't have the stomach for it so he writes insidiously therefore most of those who did not shoot only reaffirmed the macho values of the majority according to which it was a positive quality to be tough enough to kill unarmed non-combatant men women and children and tried not to rupture the bonds of, fr- of comradeship that constituted their social world yeah. So, did you have any final thoughts before I uh, give my final thought? Mm-mm. No. 
Okay, well, to close out today, I want to just read the final paragraph because I think Browning kind of says it best. So he writes, the reserve police... Uh, the reserve policemen faced choices, and most of them committed terrible deeds. But those who killed cannot be absolved by the notion that anyone in the same situation would have done as they did. For even among them, some refused to kill, and others stopped killing. Human responsibility is ultimately an individual matter. At the same time, however, the collective behavior of, of Reserve Police Battalion 101 has deeply disturbing implications. There are many societies afflicted by traditions of racism and caught in the siege mentality of war or threat of war. Everywhere society conditions people to respect and defer to authority, and indeed could scarcely function otherwise. Everywhere people seek career advancement. In every modern society, the complexity of life and the resulting bureaucratization and specialization attenuate the sense of personal responsibility of those implementing official policy. Within virtually every social collective, the peer group exerts tremendous pressures on behavior and sets moral norms. If the men of Reserve Police Battalion 101 could become killers in such circumstances, what group of men cannot? So with that, we want to thank you for listening today. And we'll be back next week. So make sure to uh, like if you like this video and subscribe if you haven't already so you can watch our future shows and get notifications on YouTube. So thanks, everyone, and take care. Bye, everybody.